Welcome to Words to Live By, a podcast series hosted by the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute. Each week, we will share some of the wit and wisdom of Ronald Reagan. In essence, Words to Live By, made up of radio addresses and speeches he delivered from the 1960s through the 1980s. So, Ronald Reagan and the Heritage Foundation. It was truly an epic partnership. In fact, it's hard to tell the story of one without much of the others, because Heritage was President Reagan's favorite think tank. And Ronald Reagan was the embodiment of the ideas and principles that Heritage holds dear. Some say that together they blazed a new path for America. So because of that, I think in today's podcast, we should focus on this significant partnership. First, a little background. Heritage Foundation started in the mid-70s, and then Governor Reagan was well aware of their work. But then, it was definitely not the high-profile Washington powerhouse it is today. One of Heritage's early studies was focused on the subject of nuclear energy. The title of the study was Nuclear Energy, Society's Salvation or Doom? And a year later, in one of Reagan's radio addresses, He commented on it. Today, as the debate continues over what type of energy to rely on, oil, gas, coal, wind, or solar, we think you'll find this commentary very interesting. Let's listen. It is rude and ungentlemanly to bluntly call the anti-nuclear power groups ignorant. They just know a great many things that aren't true. I'll be right back. We continue to be treated to the spectacle of anti-nuclear power zealots demonstrating at sites where nuclear power plants are being built or planned or even where they have been in operation. The scene is always the same. A mass rally with speakers warning of a nuclear threat to the human race, then trespass and disruption followed by mass arrests. The arrests are for misdemeanors and are not taken seriously by the demonstrators, many of whom enjoy clogging the criminal justice system and refusing to leave the jails where they are held. I'm sure many of these demonstrators are true believers in their cause, sincere in their belief that nuclear power constitutes a great danger to the world. I'm also sure they are unaware that their movement is run by strategists who are cynical and not sincere and who have a motive not announced to the ground troops who go out and get arrested. Indeed, some time ago the press carried stories of a coalition being put together to promote unilateral disarmament by the United States and opposition to further development of nuclear power in the United States. Those two causes aren't as far apart as it might seem at first glance. A study by the Heritage Foundation finds that unless we go forward and fast with the building of more nuclear generating plants, we may face the early 1980s with unemployment soaring above the 7 million mark and around $90 billion a year in lost wages. Our industrial might would be severely crippled by brownouts and power shortages. Where does this tie into disarmament? Well, obviously, our industrial capacity is the greatest thing we have going for us in the contest with the Soviet Union, which is not only going forward with its military buildup, but is plunging full speed ahead in the development of nuclear power. I wonder how many of our demonstrators would like to protest in Red Square. Well, of course, that comment was made eight years before the Chernobyl disaster. Now, that mess occurred in April 1986, and at the time... It was believed that the Soviets suffered such massive embarrassment, especially Gorbachev, that it actually motivated Gorbachev to come back to the negotiating table with Ronald Reagan in October 1986 at Reykjavik. Anyway, let's get back to the ending of Governor Reagan's radio address. 
Of course, San Onofre was producing nuclear power for California in the 70s, and now, of course, is closed. Let's hear how he sets the record straight. The people of California voted two years ago by a majority of more than two to one to go forward with nuclear power. So far, Governor Brown has blocked virtually any such development. The opponents of nuclear energy claim they only want it made safer. In truth, they just don't want it, period. A congressman from California, Bob Badham, has called attention to something that has gone unnoticed in all the recent demonstrations in New Hampshire and California. The San Onofre nuclear power plant in Southern California just passed its 10th anniversary. In these 10 years, it has produced 26 billion kilowatt hours of electricity. Every day it operates, it saves 16,000 barrels of oil. And when the two new units the demonstrators are protesting about go into operations, the savings will be 30 million barrels of oil a year. But most important to those who have built up the false threat of danger is the San Onofre plant's 10-year record of perfect industrial safety. Not one employee in all these 10 years has ever experienced a lost time industrial accident. This is Ronald Reagan. Thanks for listening. More about the guidance Heritage Foundation provided for President Ronald Reagan after this message. Stay tuned. The Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation is the nonprofit organization created by President Reagan himself and specifically charged by him with continuing his legacy and sharing his principles, individual liberty, economic opportunity, global democracy, and national pride. We must remain vigilant and work together to share these conservative principles with younger generations. Your role is critical to move our mission forward. Thank you for your continued support. Please visit reaganfoundation.org give. That's reaganfoundation.org give. Now, back to the story. The partnership with presidential nominee Reagan began in 1980. What Heritage did was they provided the president-elect's transition team with detailed policy prescriptions on everything from taxes and regulation to trade and national defense. The published version of these recommendations was an 1,100-page mandate for leadership. Yeah, that's what it was called. It was described by UPI back then as a blueprint for grabbing the government by its frayed New Deal lapels and shaking out 48 years of liberal policy. The new president used mandate to help realize his vision of a world free of communism, an economy that didn't crush people's dreams with high taxes and regulations, and an America that the world could admire once again. Hmm, sounds pretty good. Well, he gave copies of mandate for leadership to every member of his cabinet. And they say the result is nearly two-thirds of Mandate's 2,000 recommendations were adopted or attempted by the Reagan administration. Kind of interesting, huh? As conservative commentator William F. Buckley Jr. put it, the Heritage Foundation had a great hour when Ronald Reagan was elected president and found waiting for him three volumes of heritage material designed to help him chart the nation's course in the right direction. Sixty percent of the suggestions enjoined on the new president were acted upon, which is why they say Mr. Reagan's tenure was 60 percent successful. Well, that's up to you. But anyway, on the 10th anniversary of the Heritage Foundation, 
Their featured speaker was none other than the 40th President of the United States. Forty years ago, he delivered this address. Let's hear his comments on the status of conservative ideology. And I'm delighted to be here with Heritage. I remember the days when a conservative intellectual was considered a contradiction in terms. You know, like thrifty liberal, <laughs> modest government, and penny-pinching congressman. But it's a great privilege to be here tonight at an extraordinary moment, not only in the history of the Heritage Foundation, but I firmly believe in the intellectual history of the West. Historians who seek the real meaning of events in the latter part of the 20th century must look back on gatherings such as this. They will find among your numbers the leaders of an intellectual revolution that recaptured and renewed the great lessons of Western culture, a revolution that is rallying the democracies to the defense of that culture and to the cause of human freedom, a revolution that I believe is also writing the last sad pages of a bizarre chapter in human history known as communism. Now, we have been living in an age when the cult of overwhelming government was the reigning ideology. It dominated our intellectual thought and claimed some of the best minds of our society and civilization. And now all of that is changing. The evidence is before us in this room and in the astonishing growth of remarkable, a remarkable institution called the Heritage Foundation. You know, during the years when I was out on the mashed potato circuit, I was sometimes asked to define conservatism. And I must confess that while I have the cream of the conservative intellectual movement before me, I'm tempted to use Justice Potter Stewart's definition. He gave it for another subject, by the way. He said he couldn't define it exactly, but I know it when I see it. <laughs> he was talking about pornography. <laughs> well, I can see conservatism here tonight. There is no better evidence that the time of the conservative idea has come than the growth of the Heritage Foundation. Back in the mid-70s, this foundation was begun, as you've been told, by Paul Weyrich and Ed Fulner, with only a few staff members, some modest offices, and not very much in the way of funding. And today, of course, you know, Heritage has more than 100 staff members, many more associates and consultants, as you've been told, a brand new office building, its picture is on the program there, a budget that's gone from $3 million to $10 million in five years, but it's not money or numbers of people or size of the offices that measure Heritage's impact. Your frequent publications, timely research, policy papers, seminars, and conferences account for your enormous influence on Capitol Hill, and believe me, I know, at the White House. Yes, the Heritage Foundation is an enormous undertaking and achievement. It's great to see old friends from California that are also Heritage activists like Frank Walton. But I particularly want to single out here for their enormous efforts some who've already been mentioned, Joe Coors, the Noble Family, our Master of Ceremonies, Frank Shakespeare, and of course, Heritage's Guiding Light, Ed Fulner. Ed likes to say that not too many years ago, a phone booth was just about big enough to hold a meeting of conservative intellectuals in Washington. He said it here tonight. I know what he means. 
Washington has a way of being the last to catch on. <laughs> Just as the growth of heritage has stunned the pundits, the conservative cause itself, the Goldwater nomination in 1964, the growth of the new right in the 1970s, the conservative victory in 1980, and the tax cut victory of 1981, all of these came as huge surprises to the Washington technocrats who pride themselves on knowing what's going on in politics. Well, the reason is plain. Many people in the power structure of our capital think that appealing to someone's narrow self-interest is the best way to appeal to the American people as a whole, and that's where they're wrong. When the American people go to the polls, when they speak out on the issues of the day, they know how high the stakes are. They know the future of freedom depends not on what's in it for me, but on the ethic of what's good for the country, what will serve and protect freedom. One current bestseller, In Search of Excellence, has caused a great flurry in the business management world because it argues that intangibles like shared values and a sense of mission are the great overlooked factors in accounting for the success of business institutions. Well, this is true of nations as well. The American electorate seeks from its national leadership this sense of shared values, this reaffirmation of traditional American beliefs. They do not want a president who is a broker of parochial concerns. They do not want a definition of national purpose, a vision of the future. And I believe that we conservatives have provided that vision during the past few years. When this administration took office, we declined to go with patchwork solutions and quick fixes. We delivered instead on the promises we'd made to the American people, promises that were part of a consistent and coherent view of this nation's needs and problems. We had a policy. We put it into effect. We made our promises and we kept them. We said we would stop the juggernaut build up over 40 years of increased federal spending, and we did. Despite the momentum accumulating from a host of new social welfare and entitlement programs, we still managed to cut the growth in federal spending by nearly 40 percent. For the first time since 1964, all personal income tax rates have been cut, and cut by a hefty 25 percent across the board. And we made the most important reform of them all. In 1985, your income taxes will be indexed so never again will you be pushed into higher tax brackets by inflation. That was an America that once upon a time not too long ago knew that an American in some distant corner of the world could be caught up in revolution or conflict or war of some kind. And all he had to do was pin a little American flag to his lapel and he could walk through that war and no one would lay a finger on him because they knew this country stood by its people wherever they might be. We're going to have that kind of America again. In October 1983, the president was accused of being a warmonger and highly criticized for placing Pershing II missiles in West Germany. European leaders had been begging Reagan for years to do so. At this point, the president addresses that issue because, remember, he was a deeply religious man who held to the Ten Commandments closely and a strong advocate for peace. Let's listen. And now let me speak a word for a moment about a 
matter that needs to be cleared up. There are a number of congressmen on the Hill, including conservatives, who, while being inclined to vote for our defense policies, want to be absolutely sure of our desire for arms control agreements. Well, I hope my recent speech at the United Nations has helped to clarify this. But just let me add a personal note, and this is a matter of conscience. Any American president, anyone charged with the safety of the American people, any person who sits in the Oval Office and contemplates the horrible dimensions of a nuclear war must in conscience do all in his power to seriously pursue and achieve effective arms reduction agreements. The search for genuine, verifiable arms reduction is not a campaign pledge or a sideline item in my national security agenda. Reducing the risk of war and the level of nuclear arms is an imperative precisely because it enhances our security. In our relations with the Soviet Union, we're engaged in a comprehensive agenda of major arms control negotiations. And for the first time, the Soviets are now talking about more than nuclear arms ceilings. They're talking about nuclear arms reductions. And tomorrow I will be meeting with Ambassador Ed Rowney to give him the new instructions he will carry back to the START talks in Geneva on Wednesday. In fact, let me take this a step further and explain why it's our willingness to be candid about the Soviet Union, about its nature and expansionist policies. It improves the chances of success in the arms control area. <laughs> History shows us what works and doesn't work. Unilateral restraint and goodwill does not provide similar reactions from the Soviet Union and it doesn't produce genuine arms control. But history does teach that when the United States has the resolve to remain strong and united, when we stand up for what we believe in, and when we speak out forthrightly about the world as it is, then positive results can be achieved. Weakness does not offer the chance for success. Strength does. And that strength is based on military capability, strong alliances, a willingness to speak the truth and to state our hope that someday all peoples of the world will enjoy the right to self-government and personal freedom. And as I urged in those closing days of the 1980 campaign, let us remember the purpose behind our activities, the real wellspring of the American way of life. Even as we meet here tonight, some young American coming up along the Virginia or Maryland shores of the Potomac is looking with awe for the first time at the lights that glow on the great halls of our government and the monuments to the memory of our great men. We are resolved tonight that young Americans will always see those Potomac lights, that they will always find here a city of hope in a country that's free, so that when other generations look back at this conservative era in American politics and our time in power, They'll say of us that we did hold true to that dream of Joseph Winthrop and Joseph Warren, that we did keep faith with our God, that we did act worthy of ourselves, that we did protect and pass on lovingly 
that shining city on a hill. Thank you very much, and God bless you all. Thank you for listening. For more information on the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute, including information on how to become a member, information on upcoming exhibits at the Reagan Library, and more information on the legacy of President Reagan, please visit reaganfoundation.org. And don't forget to like and follow the Reagan Foundation on all social media platforms. Don't forget to subscribe to the Words to Live By podcast in your iTunes or Google Play stores and on other podcast platforms as they become available. New episodes of Words to Live By come out every Tuesday. Like what you hear? Check out our A Reagan Forum podcast featuring great speeches delivered at the Reagan Library. New episodes drop every Thursday. And don't forget to follow at Ronald Reagan on Facebook, at Ronald Reagan 40 on Twitter, and Reagan Foundation on YouTube. Also, search for us on SoundCloud and Stitcher. Thank you.